Last week I finished 1 John and I said I wasn't sure but what we probably were finished and as I have spent this week in prayer I believe we are finished with 1 John for now. We might come back to it someday. Um, but I spent this whole week every time I got on my face before God saying okay what, do, what, what am I preaching on God? What, are, what am I doing? And even Friday, Thursday or Friday? Thursday. Jesse came by my office and he said so what are you preaching on? I was like I have no clue. I've been praying all week. I haven't a clue. And last night I went to bed. God, I, I don't know. I got up this morning going, God, it's Sunday. <laughs> literally. I mean, this is not something I was playing with. I was literally diligently, prayerfully reading the scriptures and reading and praying and just meditating and saying, Lord, what would you have me do it? And what God said to me literally this morning was, you're two days behind in your prayer time. I mean, in your devotional reading. Because I had, third, I mean, Friday and Saturday were just crazy days for me. So I had spent time with the Lord, but I didn't take the time to read through all the passages of scripture that I read. So I said, okay, you want me to do that now? He said, yeah, I do. <sighs> okay, so I was reading through it. And as I'm reading through it, the Holy Spirit just downloaded the sermon. And Thursday, Jesse can attest to this. He said, what do you think you're going to preach? And I said, if anything, I think I'm probably going to be preaching out of the book of Ezra. But that's a pretty broad thing to be preaching out of. And that's exactly, exactly where God has led me. So we're going to be looking at the book of Ezra. Now, Ezra is too long to just put into one sermon. However, for now, we're just going to do a quick overview of the book of Ezra and come up with one, I believe, important spiritual truth that we need to carry with us this week. So before you start looking in the book of Ezra, I'm hearing those pages turning. And by the way, it's just before Psalms, if you can't find it. Okay, if you take your Bible and you open up to the very center, you'll find Psalms. Okay, literally. Hold your Bibles up, put your fingers and your thumbs in the very, very center and open it. And almost always you will come up with Psalms if you open it up to the center of the book. Then you just go back towards the front cover a little bit. And you'll find Job. And then after Job, you'll find Esther. Then you'll find Nehemiah. And then you'll find Ezra. Okay? Now, quite honestly, Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of, kind of almost like one book. Some scholars think that they probably were one history. But for now, we're just going to be looking at Ezra. But before you start going into it, what do you know about the book of Ezra? What do you, what have you already learned in your previous reading or studying or going to Sunday school or whatever? What do you know, Charlene? Ezra was a priest who got the people of God back to the To the law of the Lord and to the, and to the, I'm sorry. Okay, got it, got it, got it, okay. So Ezra was a priest. He was known as, he was a scribe, if you will. His job was to know the, the law of God, most, the, the, the Torah, the five books of the Bible. Every line, every, every jot, every tittle, he was supposed to know it backwards, forwards, inside and out. What we would call them today would be akin to a rabbi or a pastor or a preacher. My job is to know the scriptures backwards, forwards, inside and out, so that when a member of my community comes to me and says, what does this mean? I'm supposed to be able to guide you to the scriptural truth that's there. 
Okay, That's what a scribe was. But they had to know it even better than I know it. They had to know it backwards, forwards, inside and out, be able to spout it without even opening the book. That's what a scribe did. Now, what is the timeline? Where is When is Ezra happening in the history of Israel? It's when the exiles returned to, uh, to Jerusalem. Okay. Right. If you go ahead, they returned from the nation of Babylon, which was Iraq today. Okay. Um, what what the deal was was God through His prophets was saying, "You people need to get your act together. You need to start turning around from from your evil practices. You need to start turning around from your evil practices." Well, if you read through the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'll see the stories and the progression. It's an actually a downward progression of the nation of, of Israel. First, it splits in half to the north and the south nations. So we have Samaria and the Judean area, and then now you've got a, a story of two king timelines and then finally the Assyrians come and wipe out the northern kingdom and so all that's left is the Judean part of what's now left of the nation of Israel and these kings are having some are good people some are not so good people some are good people some are not so good people and you'll see the progression but it's still a steady steady downward decline in morality a downward decline in uh, right relationship with God and ultimately at one point God says to one king, because of you having a right heart before me, and because of you being willing to convert and try to bring the people back to me, I'm going to stave off all of the things that I've already declared will be happening during your kingdom. But it will be happening. Because there reached a point where there was no other choice, that the nation was going to fall. And so, finally, King Nebuchadnezzar comes from Babylon, and he wipes out what's left of the Judean of the, of the nation of Israel, and literally, they break down the walls of Jerusalem, and the armies rush in, and they steal all of the gold and the silver and the bronze from the temple. Now, if you remember, this is the temple that Solomon built. They literally had the walls lined with hammered gold. So the entire inside of the temple, especially the Holy of Holies, was gold. The floor was gold, the walls were gold, the ceiling was gold, the furniture was gold, solid gold. And these armies from Babylon came in and ripped it all down and carried it off. And it says that they put it into the treasury of the king of Babylon. And in some cases it says it took it into the temple to their pagan god. So literally... The, the city of Jerusalem has been left decimated. He, he took all the educated people, all the leaders. All the leaders. They left the poor. They left the poor and they brought other people who were not Jewish and resettled them there. Because that was their practice. So now what's happened is, and it says, if you go back to Second Chronicles, it says, and the land was given its rest for 70 years. Because that was God's dec- decree. But if you remember back when we were studying Isaiah, Isaiah foretold all of this. And at some point in Isaiah's prophecy, he talked about a king. And that king's name was Cyrus. So if you'll turn, if you're, if you're turned to Ezra right now, if you will turn back one page to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, 
you will see this last paragraph, the very last paragraph of, um, of chapter 36, which is the last paragraph of Chronicles. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So Persia was Babylon. Okay, Babylon was King Nebuchadnezzar. And then Babylon got taken over um, by the Medes and the Persians. And so Cyrus is a king of the Persians. And he says, Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit. Now, I'm not wrong that I said uh, Isaiah prophesied about this. Jeremiah also prophesied about it because Jeremiah and Isaiah were contemporary prophets. Um, So the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord... The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Now, if you read through this story, and we're not going to take the time this morning to do it. There's actually, and as I said, Nehemiah and Ezra kind of like one story. Um, there's actually three major leaders of the nation of Israel in this Ezra and Nehemiah uh, history. The very first leader of the nation, of the people of Israel, uh, when they're coming back from the exile and trying to resettle in the nation uh, of Israel, uh, of Judah, they, uh, uh, there's a guy named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel's job is to try and get the temple built. Okay, now remember I said the walls of the city are torn down. Everything's in disarray and and, and burned and animals have been roaming the streets and what was left of the people, they're just basically living in rubble. They have no money. They have no center of government. They just nothing. And so now Zerubbabel comes and Zerubbabel's trying to, and he's bringing with him an entourage of people from the former Babylon, from Persia, from from that area of the country where they're coming back from, from exile and their job is to resettle the land. And he gets people together to try and rebuild. Well, Cyrus, when he makes this decree, he doesn't just simply say, you can go back and build. But he says, and I'm going to give you the resources to do it. And I'm going to give you all the gold and silver and bronze that was taken from your temple for you to carry back to the temple. So that you can restart this. Because God did a great work in the heart and mind of Cyrus. So Zerubbabel comes and he begins this building project. And at one point in the storyline, you read that the older people who were little, little, little back when the exile started, then they spent 70 years in exile. Now they're coming back as 70-something or 80 or 90-something-year-old people. And it says when they see this second temple that has been built by Zerubbabel and the people of Israel, they're weeping. Why? Because they remember the former glory of Isaiah, I mean of Solomon's temple. And they're commanded to stop weeping. This is a time of celebration. And so they celebrate. And they celebrate the Passover. And they celebrate the Feast of Weeks. And they celebrate. And they, they, they try to reestablish. But if you remember, it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules and laws that they had to know to be able to live the way God wanted them to live. And Zerubbabel's job was to build the temple. Well, 
one of the things I haven't said in this story is that there was opposition. As they were trying to rebuild the temple and come back and resettle, the people of the land weren't excited about this because they were being displaced. Hey, I'm in charge here. I'm the governor of this area. I have the authority of the king and I've been living high on the hog. And who do you think you are coming back in here, Zerubbabel? And Zerubbabel goes, I have a decree from Cyrus himself. Oh, well, let me, let me send an envoy to Cyrus and see if indeed. Well, and if you read through this whole thing, it literally goes through Cyrus and Darius and a couple of the kings, a couple, three kings, possibly a couple, four kings, depending on what your history is. Before this whole thing happens, before this whole resettlement takes place. And they have to suspend the rebuilding of Jerusalem until the king responds. And then another time happens, and then another, and finally there's a third time that happens, and by this time, Ezra has now come, he is, he is now being sent by the current king, because again, these governors have been saying, they shouldn't be building, and you need to do something about this king, and so there was this statement that was made, and it's so funny if you read the letter, because it literally says, these people said you, there was this decree made back all this time ago by King Cyrus when he was king of Persia. And you need to go and check those annals and see if that's a true story. And so the governors literally don't cut their own, their, their own throat. Because what they did was they let the new king know that a previous king had made a decree. And they said, go search the records to make sure that what they're saying is true is true. So the new king sees that indeed it is true and says, whoa, and we haven't done what we were said we were going to do and we haven't said what we were supposed to do. So here, you've got all of these resources added on top and I will tear down anybody's house who tries to stop these people from accomplishing what they're supposed to accomplish. Because their job is to reestablish their, their form of religion and then to pray for me. Not pray to me, but to pray for me. Because I want the blessing of their God. Because their God is the genuine God. Their God is the almighty God. This is the story of Ezra. The people of God trying to reestablish. After suffering through 70 years of exile. And the people of God finally getting the packing of everyone to do what God wants them to do and God's bringing it about in a mighty and powerful way and even when the enemies are trying to, to dissuade and keep problems going the, the God keeps pounding them down and pounding them down and pounding them down and it is amazing the story is powerful and Ezra as Charlene shared with us Ezra comes and his job is the temple's already been rebuilt and it's now his job to reestablish the sacrificial system to to train people on how they're supposed to offer up sacrifices and how people are supposed to come to the temple and offer their sacrifices and not do it in the high places and not offer it to foreign gods but only to the only God. I mean this is an incredible sea change in the mind and culture of the entire nation as they're being reestablished. Why? Because they had been in rebellion for so long that they lost it. I can point you back to a point where there was a king of Judah named Josiah who said, I want the temple that's been laying in disarray to be re, re, revitalized and I want you to go in and re, rebuild stuff and I'm going to make all these resources available. And literally as they're going through and cleaning out stuff and getting cobwebs taken down and they find a scroll. And what is the scroll? It's the word of God. And they read it. And they go, oh my word. And they go to the king and they say, look what we found in a deep dark corner hidden under a bunch of junk. And the king says, read it to me. And he reads it and he's like, oh, 
Oh, we have not been doing what God declares for us to do. And his whole heart changed and he totally, and he was one of the kings that God said, because of your heart change, I will hold off on what I've said. But the reality was the people of Israel had lost touch with what God wanted. The people of Israel had not been following the teachings of the Torah all those 70 years. They tried, but it was not effective. And so the bottom line was Ezra's job, after the building was built by Zerubbabel, Ezra's job was to come in and to reestablish the system of worship and how God wanted his people to live. And the thing that was so dramatic and powerful for me in this, it's towards the end of the book of Ezra. So turn with me. In chapter 8, in verse 15, it says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped for three days. As I reviewed the peoples and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, El-Nathan, Jerob, El-Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib, Joy, Joyarib, and El-Nathan, who were men of insight. And I sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place of Casaphia, telling them what to say to Edo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place of, at the place Casaphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely, Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen. 18. Also, Hashabiah, and with him, Jeshiah, of the sons of Merari, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20 people. Besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites, and these were all mentioned by name. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy while on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against against all who forsake him. So we fasted, and we implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Now, what is that saying? That is saying that Ezra knew that to reestablish the rituals and the practices of the worship in, in Israel, he needed to have people to work in the temple. And he, he, needed, he knew the law, but he couldn't do it himself. He needed Levites. He needed people who were of the lineage from, from Aaron, the, high, the original high priest. <coughs> and so he guided them. And then he said, now we've got to travel across the desert from Babylon, from Persia, we're modern day Iraq, down to Jerusalem. And he said, that wasn't, a, that was a dangerous road. But I declared amongst all of us a fast so that we could get on our faces before God and say, we are depending on you, God, for your protection. We are depending on you, God, for the care of this trip. You have ordained that we are to go. You have made the way for us to go. You have provided the resources for us to go. And literally, I'm ashamed to go to the king and ask for protection 
I have to trust you, O God. But before I can even do that, we're all going to be quiet before you and we're going to fast. And we're going to trust you, God, for that which we need from you. And then we're told that Ezra finally gets to Jerusalem and they begin to put to practice all the things that need to be done. And the nation of Israel is slowly gearing back up to normal worship practices and normal righteousness. And this is the way God wants it. And then we get to verse nine. I mean, chapter, excuse me, chapter nine. And it says, after these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. And basically what he's saying, what they're saying there, is that the Israelites had married foreigners and had brought in their worship practices into their home. So they were not 100% wholeheartedly devoted to God alone, to Yahweh, to El Shaddai, God Almighty but that they were allowing these foreign gods and these foreign practices into their lives. And so Ezra, again, as the leader, trying to reestablish right relationship and and the right way of doing things from God, he then has to address this. And if you get down into verse, and we don't have time this morning to to unpack it all. You'll have to read it for yourself. But if you get into verse chapter 10, it says, While Ezra prayed and made confession... Weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. Now, he was doing this not because he was wrong. He was doing this because he was the leader of the people. And the people were living in sin. And he needed to get on his face before God as the leader. And confess and repent on their behalf. And as an example, call them to the same type of repentance and confession. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God. We have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. And even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. And of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task. And we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as they had, as had been said. And so they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all of their property would be forfeited and they themselves would be banned from the congregation. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twelfth, twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of the matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, You have broken faith, you have married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered in a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. 
But the people are many, and it is time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task that will take one or two days, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and the judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away. Then the returned exiles did so. Uh, as were the pre-selected men, heads of the fathers' households, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. And on the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And the, by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the people who had married foreign women. Let's 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 just talk about this in just everyday language. God will be God. He will not, God will not share place with anything else. God must be El Shaddai, God Almighty, the number one, the only one. As a result of disobedience and faithlessness and not willingness, unwillingness to follow what God had ordained and decreed for the people, the nation of Israel was cast out, literally being destroyed by enemy invaders. The hand of blessing was removed, the protection was removed, and God, in his sovereignty, allowed the destruction of Jerusalem, and all of the wealth was carried off. And as Elsie shared, all of the intelligentsia was carried off, all of the leaders were carried off, leaving nothing. And it took seven decades until God finally relented and said, it is okay, now you can return. And it was a slow process of rebuilding and reestablishing. But once they were reestablished, once they were back to where they had a good solid building and they had a good, uh, they, their, 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 their system was getting in place and they, they, they were meticulous and careful in making sure that they did everything they were supposed to do, then it was time to reestablish this, um, <clears throat> this religion, if you will. And Ezra was made aware of the fact that there were people still living in sin. And he's like, wow! And so he gets on his face before God at the temple and he's like, God, please forgive us. What are these people doing? I know the history. I know what you've done in the past. I know how you've declared that you will have no other gods before you. We are violating it again, God. Forgive us. And then as the leader, he called every one of the people, threatening them with loss and harm if they didn't show up. And then he challenged everyone and he said, you people are in violation and you know who you are. And it is time for you to own your sin and to do something about it. And the people said, we agree with you, but it's a task too great for just a couple of days. Can we put a system in place so that everyone can be screened and we can all identify what's going on? Sure. But ultimately, we're going to deal with this cancer we're going to remove this cancer from our society because if we don't, we will see exactly the same thing happen to us again as happened over almost 100 years ago. And the end result, if you read the remaining part of this book, is that those who had married foreign wives and had allowed foreign worship practices into their homes literally had to send their wives and children out. Divorce from them. No longer have them in their lives. Think about that. 
If God were to say to you, Jesse, having Becky as your wife violates the covenant between you and me, remove her from your house and all the children that you fathered with her. Cast them out. Have nothing to do with them ever again if you want to have a relationship with me. Can you imagine the pain of all of that? Can you imagine the horror of all of that? Imagine the children. Now, I know this is hard. I know this is hard. But the reality is, you either are a servant of the living God or you're not. And what God asks of you, you must do. Or you're no longer a servant of the living God. That's just a plain and simple thing. Now, I'm not saying God is going to ask you to give up your loved ones. But you did hear me say at the very beginning with the children's sermon that if God asks you to, it is an act of love to give up your own life for someone else. And where I'm at with all of this is is this. We, in February 24th, 2019, are entering into a new church year, the 2019-2020 year. Well, for those of you who aren't aware of our church's history, 2019 is the 40th anniversary of the Two Rivers Community Church of the Nazarene. We've been here as a ministry in this community for four decades. I've been here almost, well, more than a third of that time, almost a third of that time as the pastor. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm all that in a bag of chips. I'm just simply saying God has allowed me to be here. I can tell you, those of you who weren't here 15, 16 years ago, that I sat or stood in the fellowship hall downstairs with an engineer, a Christian man from town who had come to examine our property. And he literally said to me, get a bulldozer, level this property and build someplace else on this property because this building is not worth saving. And I stood there and I wept because I knew this congregation could not afford anything like that. It would destroy this congregation. I even contacted a company out of Anchorage called Eurotech that has a process where they can raise this northwest corner of our building 15 inches in one application just by injecting foam down underneath the foundation. And I was like, that would be a salvation to this because we'd lose all the momentum, the movement of our building. That would be great. How much would that cost? Well, it's $1,000 for us just to come and do the site visit. And then we'll put that towards the cost of the project once you contract with us. Well, how much would it be? I can't tell you without coming up. I understand that, but I don't have $1,000. Can you just give me a guesstimate so I can start looking what it, whether or not we could even think about it? Well, based on what you told me, in the, probably about in the neighborhood of seventy dollars to $80,000. Well, that was 16 years ago. Our, our budget, our annual budget wasn't even 50000 back then. I was like, God, there's no way. This building was literally falling down. When, if those of you who were here, you'll remember that this front um, uh, uh, retaining wall that we put in, when Bob Howard used the backhoe to dig the dirt away from the wall, I literally saw this wall straighten up five-eighths of an inch in less than 24 hours. There had been that much pressure 
on the wall. Same thing on this wall. We were told by the engineers the only reason this building didn't fail 30 or 35 years ago was because people built Sunday school rooms downstairs and those inside walls acted as buttresses to keep this wall from collapsing in on itself. We have a brand new roof. It's not brand new anymore. It's about 10 or 12 years old. But we have a new roof. It cost us nothing. We have retaining walls that took away the movement of this building and saved the building from falling down. Cost us nothing. We have an incredible, glorious, architecturally beautiful front porch and handicap ramp that cost us nothing. Do you know the story of that? The company, I mean, the the group of people that were coming here for that raised $10,000. Our church raised $2,100. So we started that project with $12,100. And by the third day, we were out of money. And we were nowhere near finished. And I was panicked. I was on my face before God. And God said, is my arm too short? Am I not able to accomplish that which I have declared will be done? Yes, you are. Then believe me. Okay, now go out there and tell the people. Okay. Well, when it was all said and done two weeks later, we had a brand new ramp and we had a lot of other things that had been done. And we had had 12,000 to start with. And when it was all said and done, and I did a final calculation and submitted the report, we had spent $24,000. And guess what? We had $65 left from our original 12,000. That don't make sense. But that's how God works. That building was a mess. We had arsenic in our well and thought we were going to shut down. We lost our septic. We've had freeze-outs. We've had this. We've had that. We've had this. We've had that. And it's all been taken care of by our God over the last at least 16 years while I've been here. And 40 years for the whole time. Those of you who've been here all that time, you know. But something was said to me, said to us in a board meeting a month ago. Actually, it was said to me after the board meeting. I'm not sure I want to continue to serve on the board anymore because all we ever do is talk about finances. We never dream. We never vision. We never talk about ministry. It's always just about the building and finances. That stuck very hard. I don't feel, I'm not saying it was a pain that, you know, I felt like I was being attacked. But that stuck with me and I was like, God... Why has that been? And what do I need to do to change it? And I will tell you, God is drawing me into a time of on my face, in the carpet, fasting and praying, as God is bringing me resources about changing my leadership style and looking for ways to guide this congregation into a major sea change. And what I mean by that is, when this is all said and done, we will not be the same congregation that we were. You may finally say, you don't want me anymore, and send me a packing and have somebody else come in, because it may get a little bit too uncomfortable for some of you. Because the reality is, God, for whatever reason, wants this church located on this property, having a ministry in this community. He's proven it over and over and over and over again. He's provided resource after resource after resource. And he finally brought in somebody who was willing to stay longer than five years. Now, I'm not saying I'm all that in a bag of chips. Don't hear that. I'm saying I'm here because of a call on my life. I'm here because I am not released. Because believe me, oh, believe me, 
I would have left a long time ago if God did not not allow me to force me to stay. I can tell you, I won't use her name, but I can tell you that I was here two, maybe three years. That was 13 years ago. And a member of this congregation came to me and said, Pastor, can I meet with you and your wife? And I said, sure. So they came over to my home and they said, Pastor, this church has a history. And the way it works is this. We get a new pastor and they're all excited and they do some really cool things and they build up the ministry and the church is doing really well for a while. And then we begin to plateau and then they start to wane and then they get discouraged. And then they finally, after about four years or so, maybe five years, they finally leave and then we have to start all over again. And that's been the pattern, pastor. You're our sixth pastor. You're in your second or third year here and things are better than they've ever been. Would you consider leaving so that we could get somebody else who could build instead of waiting till you wane? And I thought, oh my God, what have these people had to live? That that's the experience, that it comes up and then goes down. It comes up and goes down. It comes up and goes... God, I want a trajectory. I want to see something happen. Well, God gave us a vision of 150 fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has continued to hold that before me. And he continues to force me to say it to you guys. So, so where does all that... Well, let me give you one last thing and then we're done. One of the things that God said to me through the, uh, through the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of dry bones, God said, if you will assemble the skeleton, I will cause the flesh. I will breathe the life. And so it has been the mission of this congregation and this leader to build the structure, to get the facility back into a reasonable shape that is not unsafe or, and is usable to get a financial base in place where we are able to literally 15 and a half years ago, I said to a board in a meeting, how much does it cost to run this church in a year? Huh? What? We just go buy toilet paper when we need to buy toilet paper. And if we need Sunday school material, we just take up a collection and we buy it. We don't know how much it costs to run this place. What? Okay. Well, it took 12 years to finally get a budget put in place. Those of you who've been on the board for any length of time, you remember the very first budget we did. Well, we're doing really well. Now, we're short right now. We're a little bit short. And maybe if you guys gave really, really well this morning, then we will have enough to pay the final amount for the end of this fiscal year. And if we don't, it's God's business. But the point that I'm making is we're done worrying about the structure and we're done worrying about raising funds and we're done with all of that garbage because our father has it well in hand. He's proven to us for 40 years that he can do it. And we just need to stay in our faces before him when we have a need. But what we are not done with is bringing the lost to Christ. And what we are not done with is ministering in whatever way God calls us to. And I will tell you this because I just read it in a leadership book. I haven't a clue how to go about doing that. But I promise you, I'm not leaving until God reveals to me how to do it. And then I'm going to lead you into that path. Okay. God is going to raise this congregation up. 
God is bringing new life to this group of people. Some of you are leaving. Some of you are staying. Some of you are flat out exhausted from decades of trying and trying and trying and not seeing anything and you're discouraged. And I am telling you, God is not done. And I hope to be able to be sitting in this pulpit 10 years from now saying we're celebrating the 50th and lo and behold, we're at 200 every week. Because I believe that God has a vision. And I promise you, I'm going to be on my face in the closet until God gives me that vision. And I'm going to be gathering as many people as I can around me to join me in that. Fasting and praying and studying and interviewing our community and finding out what the needs are that we can possibly do to help meet the needs of that community. But the bottom line is we are done worrying about how are we going to pay the electric bill and we're done worrying about who's going to fix the lawnmower. God will take care of all that garbage. We're going to focus on saving souls and discipling Christians. That's what we're going to be doing. But before we can do that, people, That's my commitment to you. But before we can do that, you need to look at your own life. And you need to see, are there any foreign wives and foreign practices in your own house? If you're playing games, you're going to be cast out of this congregation. And I don't mean I'm going to do it. God's going to. Because God wants a fully devoted congregation to then disciple the new Christians that he's going to be bringing. God doesn't need people who are playing games. God doesn't need people who are haphazardly or or half-heartedly being Christian. And being Christian means you got to open up the dusty Bible that you haven't read yet. That means that you need to seriously, prayerfully say, God, I'm not even giving 2% of my income to the support of this church. Help me to give 10 or more percent to the support of this church so I can join in the financial base that's needed to buy the ministry that's needed out there. It means being intentional about Walking a holy, pure, and, 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 and righteous life before God and this congregation. And it also means being in relationship one with another. And I am not going to violate privacy. I am not going to in any way make anybody feel embarrassed. But I will tell you, I have sat on the counseling couch with some of you who have said to me, I don't feel like anybody cares if I show up or not. That's an indictment. And that will kill whatever God is trying to do here. Because if we're not a safe place, a holy place, a righteous place, one that is honoring God and doing that which God has and striving to reach forward then literally, God will say, I'm going to get my work done, but it's not going to be through you people. You hear what I'm saying? I've committed to you, I'm going to do my part. I need you to join me. I'm going to ask that we uh, take a moment of prayer before we get into our communion. 
and self-reflection. I don't want, I don't necessarily want a whole line of people coming up to this altar and praying. I don't, but if we need to do that, we need to do that. But I want you to, to be serious, to look at where you are in your life. Is your relationship with God what it needs to be? If it's not, you better do something about it. Are you financially supporting this congregation? If you're not, then what are you doing here? Because you're just sucking life. Are you contributing to the ministry using your gifts and your talents and your abilities? If you're not, then what are you doing here? Because you're just sucking life. Now, I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. I want everyone to stay. I want everyone to, to be part of this. But at the same time, if you're not going to be useful to the kingdom, God's going to lop you off of the vine. That's John chapter 15. That's not Bob. That's John, chapter 15, Jesus' own words. My father is the master gardener, and any branch that he sees that is not producing fruit, he's going to cut off and cast into the fire. God don't play games, and it is not time to play games anymore. So let's go to prayer.